said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. And soldiers also asked him, And what should we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered them all by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. <laughs> Years back, when I was working on my PhD, there was one professor that, I don't know, I just had a kind of a difficult time with her, uh, Dr. Potter. I mean, I was a, I was a good student. I, I'd done really well in my program. My grades were really good as far as I was concerned. But there was that one professor I was, I was sure that she made it her life's mission to cut me back down to size. She was an Aristotelian philosopher. And it was a graduate seminar, interestingly enough, on Aristotle. Now, I considered myself an Aristotelian. In fact, I was going to base a large part of my dissertation on Aristotle's theory of emotion. So. I mean, I felt pretty good heading into the class. I mean, I was, I was sure I was, I probably spent more time studying Aristotle than anybody else in the class had. 
But when I got in there, no matter how hard I, I studied, no matter how long I spent trying to formulate my responses, and I spent a lot of time, I never quite seemed to have the right answer for the questions that she asked. I mean, she was merciless to me. Like, like, like she didn't like me. Like, I, she was always trying to prove that I was a pretender who didn't belong in the program. I mean, she hemorrhaged red ink all over my papers. So when it came time to find somebody to direct my dissertation, being the masochist that apparently I am, I went to her. It was as an anxiety-producing decision as I could ever remember making. Because I knew that if, if she said yes, then I was going to spend the next couple years of my life feeling absolutely stupid and incompetent, wishing that I'd asked somebody else. <laughs> but in my twisted little brain, I figured that if I could get my dissertation past Dr. Potter, there wouldn't be anybody else in the world who could pull it apart. I mean, she was, she was brutal on me. I used to dread getting a draft of one of my chapters back from her. I mean, she must have been vested in Bic because she dumped barrels of red ink all over my paper. But what I started to see was that um, it wasn't about whether she liked me or not. I mean, it wasn't about whether we were going to go digging fishing worms together and exchanging Christmas cards. She made my work better. I eventually saw her unflinching commitment to telling me the truth about my work to be one of the most precious gifts that she could give me. I mean, she wasn't being angry and mean. In fact, she really did like me. She was just being honest. In the aftermath of that, I've learned to love editors for how they help make me better than I could have been, left just totally to my own devices. So, so <clears throat> back then when I was teaching as a, as a graduate teaching assistant at the university, and my students would complain that I was being overly picky about their writing, <laughs> I would just bring in the latest revision from Dr. Potter and I would show them how much red ink was over the stuff that I'd written, stuff I had to put up with. And that, I mean, that usually shut them up. A few years ago, the same thing happened, and so I brought in the copy edits from the book that I'd just gotten done writing. There were over 6,800 copy edits, 6,800 copy edits. And I told my students that I was grateful for every single one of them. Which, I mean, isn't entirely true, because I think some of those things were way too picky. And just to be honest, uh, a little bit over the top. But nevertheless, sometimes the word that you want to hear least is the one that you need to hear most, isn't it? I suspect that many of you have taken a public speaking course at one time or another. 
Now, some form of public speaking is usually a requirement in college, one that terrifies some people more than facing Indiana Jones in a tomb full of snakes and Nazis. But when you go to seminary, they anti they anti up the, the, the pot just a bit. And they give it an even fancier name. They call it homiletics. To be a bit less pretentious. It's, I mean, it's preaching class, right? So it turns out, if you're going to be a preacher, they actually want you to have a class on how to do that. I have a confession to make. Even after having spent year, uh, seven years in seminary, spanning over three different seminaries, I never took a class on how to preach. I swear, I didn't. I mean, I took theory classes, history of preaching, nature of homiletics, narrative homiletics. I mean, I've read stacks of books on preaching, but I never took a homiletics 101 course. Now, part of it was because the people who happened to be teaching that course at the different seminaries I attended were people who, when I heard them preach, put me to sleep. I mean, I know, I know that's not generous of me, but I admit it, but I mean, there you go. I just didn't think they were teaching the kind of stuff that I wanted to learn. In fact, I, I, I often joke that the reason I went to the ministry in the first place is because I figured that if I had to sit and listen to somebody preach every week, it was going to have to be somebody I had some control over. In fact, I think preaching is so important that I don't even trust myself unsupervised in the pulpit, which is why I preach from a manuscript every single time. But anyway, even though I, I haven't sat through a course on how to preach, I've often thought what I'd do if I were asked to teach a class on preaching, which, shocking as this may seem to you, has never actually happened. But if I ever were asked, one of the first things that I would do is to tell my students that the most important part of preaching is telling the truth. That's it. Now, on its face, this kind of homiletical advice doesn't seem like such a tall order, right? I and mean, people, I suspect, often think that preaching is an act that assumes truth-telling. But see, what so many people mean by truth-telling often has more to do with sort of not actively lying. Like, don't, don't, don't say the sun revolves around the earth when everybody who's taking grade school science knows that that's not true. Don't say it, it wasn't an insurrection when the whole nation sat and watched the whole thing live on television. And frankly, it, don't say that the St. Louis Cardinals are better than the Chicago Cubs when everybody knows that God loves the Cubs better. <laughs> but much of what it means to tell the truth in preaching isn't just about not telling lies. It's about always telling the truth. Most preachers can usually manage the first, but the latter is where so many of us have trouble. But I mean, why is that? Well, because people tend not to want to hear difficult things, right? So the temptation for preachers is to stick to stuff that they know won't sort of ruffle the faithful. 
took the things like love and faith and the enduring human spirit, and then everybody leaves happy and you get to keep your job, win-win. But the only problem is nobody ever changed their life because they heard 917 times what a great person they already were. Being honest about the state of things is essential for us to change. Now, John the Baptist knew this. He, he was from the Dr. Potter School of homiletics. The first thing out of his mouth, never a joke or a sweet anecdote to get the crowd on his side. No, he just jumps in, bam, with both feet. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Don't, I mean, do you not, don't you not love that? I mean, there's no sort of catchy introduction, no, just staring you right in the face. But John's a prophet, right? And the point of prophecy, as Terry Eagleton reminds us, is not to foresee the future, but to warn those in the present that unless they change their ways, the future is likely to be extremely unpleasant. Now, John may be antisocial on an interpersonal level. His grooming habits and conversational aptitude were said to be more than a little off-putting. But on a theological level, he's all about the social, all about the common life we live together and how we take care of one another or how we fail to take care of one another. Now, I find it interesting that John's first response isn't to inquire into the crowd's devotional practices. He doesn't ask about the state of anybody's sex life. He doesn't ask their stance on abortion, their thoughts about prayer in school or critical race theory. He's not even particularly interested in administering a theological litmus test to determine the orthodoxy of people's core doctrinal commitments. I mean, he doesn't ask if they believe in the virgin birth or in a literal hell. When asked what we should do in the face of God's judgment on unfaithfulness, John just says, well, <clears throat> I guess the first thing I do is to figure out who doesn't have a coat? Give him one. Take off your L.L. Bean parka and your ski boots and, and give them to somebody who's trying to stay warm. If you got food, make certain that people who are hungry have some SpaghettiOs and Twinkies themselves. I mean, that's it. And I don't know about you, but my, I mean, sort of my response is, come on, John, give me something, you know, a little... A little sexier than that. I'm a grown-up believer. I mean, I want the advanced class. Give me some esoteric spirituality, some, some professional theology, something. But see, John steadfastly resists the modern penchant for Gnosticism, for, for sort of internalizing the faith, for making it into some heroic work that people do in, 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 in the privacy of their bedroom in their spare time. Like, 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 like psychotherapy or, or learning to crochet. No, John says that God's primary concern is about how we live together. It's, it's very material and unglamorous. Who's got shelter? Who's got food? 
me take care of that stuff first. Now, the tax collectors, they, they, they hear this and they want to know, well, how does that affect us, right? And John turns to the financial folks in the crowd and he says, well, you, uh, here's one. You could quit fleecing the flock. You, 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 you could start right there. Getting rich on the backs of the poor certainly isn't heading in the right direction. If you can't get that part right, then the rest of it's going to be meaningless anyway. All the personal piety in the world won't make a difference if you make profit off those who can least afford it. <clears throat> so then the military folks, they come to him. And they want to know what they can do. And he says, well, all right, let's see. Quit throwing your weight around. That'd be good. Stop doing things just because you can. See, in this new enterprise that God's getting up, might doesn't, in fact, make right. Now, see, the crowd, they hear all this, and they start getting really excited. I mean, John's got that sort of revolutionary glint in his eye. I start thinking, well, no, maybe he's the one. Maybe this is the guy. Maybe John the Baptist is the Messiah, the, 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 the political military leader who's going to come and help us kick out these Roman goons. But John cuts them off before they can get too far down that road by saying, that there's one who's actually coming after him whose shoelaces he's unworthy even to untie. That, that'll be the Messiah. And the new guy's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and he's coming to clear the threshing floor to separate the wheat from the chaff, the good stuff from the garbage, and the garbage, all of that's going to be burned in some unquenchable fire. John the Baptist, Merry Christmas, again. See, apparently Luke thinks it does make for a Merry Christmas. He says so many other exhortations he proclaimed the good news to the people. But I mean, come on, good news, really? hard to see how that qualifies as good news, isn't it? I mean, where's the good news in Mayfield, Kentucky today? Where, where's the good news in 800,000 American deaths and 5.3 million deaths worldwide from COVID? Where's the good news in our politics right now? But the promise of Advent is that God is truth and that God is not happy with the world the way things are. And God is determined through Jesus and through God's followers to set things right. Now let me ask you something. How do you think those who've experienced their pain and loss explained away by the religiously self-satisfied hear John's words? You think that that might sound like good news to them? Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise children to Abraham. You think you're safe, John says? You think that just because you wear the name, you're going to get to get out of this thing alive? I mean, even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, how do you think the poor, the outsiders, the depressed, and the bereaved, those who've felt abandoned by a system that can 
values its own interests above all else, how do you think they would hear the words of John the Baptist? Telling the followers of God to think first not about themselves, not about their pocketbooks, not about their profit margins, not about their brokerage accounts or their reputations in the community, but to think first about the last, the least, the lost, and the dying. As we've said countless times before, what constitutes good news may just depend on where you're standing when you hear it. See, in the final analysis, the good news of the reign of God is not first that the well taken care of will be even more well taken care of in the next life. The good news of the reign of God is that God's reign is present wherever the homeless are sheltered, Wherever the hungry are fed, wherever the rich give away their money and power in defense of the poor, wherever the forgotten and the grieving ones gather to be reminded and embraced, and that as long as we follow God, not one of God's children will be left to die alone, unloved, or forgotten. Want to know where the kingdom of God is? Look in the middle of the mess. See, following Jesus isn't about securing our own piece of the heavenly pie. It's about living with and loving those about whom John the Baptist speaks and those whom Jesus loved. Living under the reign of God isn't about some escaping this world. It's about offering God's welcome to those whom this world has marginalized and forgotten, oftentimes tried to kick out. It's about God pitching a tent in the muck and the mire of our sometimes God-forsaken lives and living with us in the midst of the madness and the terror. It's almost Christmas. John the Baptist is standing right smack dab in the middle of the road to Bethlehem talking about giving our lives away. Talking about a God who comes to us, who refuses to settle for the lies, who refuses to stand apart from us, apart from the pain and the fear that we live through every day. Now Luke seems to think that's good news. In fact, in Luke's hands, that's the best news we've got. Who needs the truth? What do you think? A scared and grieving world is really interested in how we answer that. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. 
Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.